So last week we had a wonderful plan. We decided after Epiphany was done, there were five Sundays between uh, Epiphany Sunday and the first Sunday in Lent, we would talk about the five marks of a believer. Great plan. And the first of that uh, first mark was to be last Sunday and none of you came to church. <laughs> so we had a decision to make this week and so we debated how we were going to fit five marks into four Sundays. And there was a wonderful idea, brilliant idea, to do two sermons this morning. <laughs> that was my idea. But the staff said, no, we're not going to do that. So you're just going to get one message this morning. It's based on a chapter in, uh, in Acts. You're welcome to turn there with me. It's the ninth chapter. And we're going to be reading together the first uh, bunch of verses there, the first 19 verses. But we're still going to have to figure out how we're going to get five marks into four Sundays. <clears throat> So maybe next week you want to think about bringing lunch, and we'll figure something out. So we're in Acts 9, and Luke writes, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priests and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who believed or belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
immediately. Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. In the 19th century, two young men in England, Lloyd Littleton and Gilbert West, both lawyers, both attorneys, thought they had great reasons for why they should reject Jesus. One said to the other, Christianity stands on a very weak foundation. Only two things really support it the alleged resurrection of Jesus, and the alleged conversion of Saul. If we can simply disprove these two stories, which should be rather simple, Christianity will fall like a house of cards. West said, I'll write a book on the alleged resurrection of Jesus and show that it could never have happened. Littleton said, well, then I'll write a book on the alleged appearance of Jesus to the Apostle Paul and show how it could not have happened, as the Bible says, by a voice from heaven. Months later, they met together again. And one said, you know, I I have a confession to make. I've been looking into the evidence and I'm beginning to think that, that there might be something to this. And the other said, I'm discovering the same thing. So they both completed their research. They both finished their books. Gilbert West's book is entitled The Resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a classic that argues for the absolute certainty of Christ's resurrection. Lloyd Littleton, well, he wrote a book titled The Conversion of St. Paul. It, too, is a landmark defending his conversion. So what turned this around? What turned them around? The evidence. West considered the total transformation of the disciples from those who were cowered in the presence of the authorities to those who now were willing to boldly proclaim the gospel as primary evidence. And little too was overwhelmed with Saul's conversion from a Jewish Pharisee who considered the way blaspheming against God to a now dynamic witness for Jesus Christ from a persecutor of the faith to a defender willing to die for it the only explanation either of them had was it was the power of God Littleton became absolutely convinced that Paul's was more than just a simple conversion story. He saw Saul, Paul, as a transformation story that was possible only by God's power and by God's grace. Only God can take his greatest enemy and turn him into his greatest advocate. In fact, the story is so impactful on Luke that he tells it three times in the gospel according to, of Acts, the gospels of Acts. The story's there in chapter nine, chapter 22, and once again in chapter 26. So let's talk about 
Saul for just a few moments. We would meet him first at the stoning of Stephen, the church's first named martyr. Saul, a Jew, was on the fast track to becoming a prestigious Pharisee, a well-known rabbi and a member of the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jewish faith. He had had the best of the training possible, a rabbinical school with Gamaliel, if you will, a Harvard equivalent. He wore the robes. He wore the prayer phylacters on his head. He had a well-formed impression of exactly what Messiah must look like. And he didn't look at all like Jesus. I imagine it was quite a scene for God to be looking down and to see two key players in his kingdom just a very short distance apart. One covered in blood. The other covered in prayer shawls. One who lived for Christ. One who was committed to building his own reputation. One who could not save himself from men. One who could not save himself from his own sin and ego. One who was loved by God. And the other who was also loved by God. Luke tells us that Saul had made it his personal mission to eradicate Christianity and all the Christians who had been scattered by the intense persecution in Jerusalem. Saul was convinced Judaism and Christianity were incompatible, and he was not about to let Christianity destroy his faith, his religion, and his future. So without a hint of grace, he pursued the people of grace all the way to Damascus, about a 150-mile walk, if you will. He meant business. He was passionate. He was sold out to his cause. For Saul, proclaiming Jesus as Messiah meant that saying God was honoring someone that God's law condemned. It literally meant denying for Saul the law, the Torah that God had given For Paul knew it inside and out, and he understood that the law said, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon that tree, but you shall bury him the same day. And this is the point. For a hanged man, for a hanged man, the scripture says, is accursed by God. And Paul, Saul understood there were no exceptions in his mind. It actually seems quite simple. Jesus was crucified. He was hung on a tree. All crucified people hung on a tree are accursed by God. Therefore, Jesus was cursed. So confessing Jesus to be the Messiah was absurd and blasphemous because it suggested that God's blessing now rested on someone who was cursed because they had been crucified. 
Wouldn't make any difference if Jesus' death was a miscarriage of justice. (laughs) No, cursed is cursed. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. And dead is dead. And so Saul pursued these blasphemers with a vengeance. According to Saul, anyone who propagated that Jesus was Messiah was representing a malignant growth on his faith and needed to be excised. The violence of Saul's zeal drove many of the disciples of Jesus out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, out of Samaria, and into the rest of the world. God was using this evil, you see, for good, for the building of his kingdom. But most of Jesus' followers were still not beyond the reach of the high priest. Because in 47 AD, Julius Caesar granted the Jewish high priest the right of extradition. So he could bring the followers of the way wherever they went, wherever they ran, wherever they tried to escape, back into Jerusalem for trial, conviction, and death. Luke writes in the second verse, Saul procured letters to the synagogues of Damascus. So if he found any, any male or female, old or young, belonging to the way, he might bring them back bound to Jerusalem. On the way to Damascus, Luke tells us, midday, a bright light shone around Saul. And from the middle of that light comes a voice, Shaul, Shaul, Mat Radafini. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The question is simple. But no doubt this question came with an incredible shock to Saul because he had been out there persecuting the followers of Messiah. Now imagine his sudden wave of panic that just flows over him as he begins to realize and as it begins to set in that he has been on the wrong side of God. Instead of doing something God wanted, he's doing something God didn't want. And living on the wrong side of God begs the question, what is God going to do with me because of what I have done or what I failed to do? You have not just been making life miserable for God's followers. (laughs) The divine voice said, you have been persecuting me, me, Like Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 40, if you have done it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. So here's Saul. What will God do to me? What is God going to do to me because of the horrible things I have been doing? Well, God blinded him. And Saul had to be humbly led into Damascus. For three days and for three nights he lived in darkness, neither eating nor drinking, the scripture says. Richard Rackham says it was like spending three days in the tomb. Hmm, sound familiar? 
It was a time for Saul to think about the darkness he was mired in, to reflect on what he had done, to reassess his relationship with Jesus, and to anticipate what was going to happen and where he was going to go from here. That's hard work. People stay busy today just so they don't have to do that. Forced solitude and forced silence can be rather painful. At the same time, it can be life transforming. Scripture tells us that Saul used that time to pray. Well done, Saul, well done. But you see, God had a bigger plan for Saul as he does for each one of us. On the third day, Saul would rise again with Christ through his baptism. He would be filled with the spirit, he would later write. He would be forgiven of his outrageous sins. He would be embraced by the disciples in Damascus. And he would be admitted to the fellowship of the table. According to Midrash, Hebrews believed that the soul stayed close to a person for up to three days. Lazarus, you remember, had been in the tomb for four days. The authors underscore that so you know he was dead, dead. Soul was no longer there before Jesus raised him up. Jesus was in the tomb for three days, so he too would be understood to be completely, absolutely dead before God raised him up. Saul, in this situation, was raised and transformed to a brand new life after he has been in darkness for three days. Actually, he had been in spiritual darkness for his whole life. But Luke wants to emphasize it for us. Paul's in darkness. That's, hap- that's what happens. That's where we are until we come face to face with Jesus. You see, this is a story of God's grace. Grace Saul personally experienced. Because of God's grace, Saul is now forgiven. Because of God's grace, Saul is now a new creature. Because of God's grace, Saul becomes a forever follower of Jesus. Now in Damascus, there is this disciple named Ananias. And Luke writes that the Lord appeared to Ananias in a dream and said to Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. So Ananias Googles Saul and says to God, are you kidding? This guy is one mean dude. He's here to arrest us. He's here to put us on trial. He's here to end our life. And the Lord said to Ananias, go. When was the last time you heard God say, oops, you're right, Ananias. I didn't think about that. Maybe I should rethink that. I'll let you know. I'll get back to you. No. God says, go. This is a man, a chosen man, an instrument of mine. I'm going to use him. God often says go. He says it to people and things and places he wants us to consider that we might think are questionable. Go. 
whether it's in the Hebrew or the Greek or the English, means go. But Lord, really, this guy is so bad that there is no way that he is going to become a Christian. No way. But if you say, go, God, I will go. And so Ananias goes because yes is a good answer when God says, go. Ananias goes and he extends grace. And it strikes me that if Ananias can extend grace to Saul, you and I can extend grace to anyone, to everyone. No one ever said that being a follower of Jesus would be easy. Truth is, it's not. Extending grace is one of the most difficult things you and I are called to do. It's challenging, it's hard. It looks foolish to the world. And if it seems easy, then we're not really doing it right. But extending grace to people who are not worthy of grace needs to be a part of our DNA and who we are. And God underscores that in these few verses. Maybe you remember the story of Jonah. God asked him to go to Nineveh to preach, to ask them to repent of their sins. But Jonah decided to go in the opposite direction because Jonah knew that if he went and preached repentance, they might repent and then God would relent and God would be gracious and Jonah's enemies would not be destroyed. And that's what he really wanted. All too often, we want to be recipients of God's grace. We want God to be gracious to us. <laughs> but we don't really want God to be gracious to others, and we certainly don't want to be gracious to them because they don't deserve our grace. But that's not how grace works. We've all known about people who we say, it'll never happen. They will never change. They are beyond redemption. They are a lost cause. They are a constant thorn in my flesh. I'm not going to waste my time with them, and I wish you wouldn't either. What that says to me is that we don't really believe in an omnipotent God. Because look at Saul. Art Millard tells a wonderful story. I'm sure many of you have heard the song or perhaps seen the, the film, I Can Only Imagine. He talks about his father being transformed to a monster who beat him constantly into the most godly man he had ever met. And he rightly attributes that to the power and the presence of God. People change. They can. They must. We all must. Grace must be extended. 70 times 7, God says we ought to do it for forgiveness. Grace must be received. God's grace is abundant. It's ours. We are to live into it. We're to share it. It's to be a mark of every believer, and it's to mark the church as well. The reality is there is no limit to God's power. There is no end to his grace. His love reaches farther than you and I can ever imagine. There's a song that goes something like, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. 
that goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. You see, there is no such thing in God's universe as lost causes. Grace never draws a line. God's arm is never too short to save. It is always long to serve. Paul says, right in the middle of our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. What? Who does that? Christ did that. And those of us who say we follow him and love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength are to do it as well. That was God's grace to us. Can we offer anything less? So as Ananias enters the room, Luke says the scales fell off his eyes. The 17th verse reads, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus offered this persecutor forgiveness and Saul accepted and the community that had been persecuted embraced him as a brother that's grace God's grace that's what the church does at its best so you and I are offered that same grace we do need to accept it and receive it As a community, we must embrace it, even from those who persecute us. When we become gracious, then we can be gracious to other people. Being nice to people who are nice to us is just simply being friendly. That's not grace. Grace is when we're loving and kind to those who irritate and offend and get under our skin and even have betrayed us in the past. Grace offered, grace received. Grace passed along is a mark of a believer. Having been forgiven much, we should be forgiving much. It is one of the ways that you can tell if people are really followers of Jesus or if they're imposters. So Saul is baptized and he immediately begins talking to other people about Jesus Now, the truth is, Saul has long had an intellectual understanding or knowledge of God. He knows about his word. He has memorized it from beginning to end in the Old Testament. He knows about God's supposed love and grace. He learned all about it growing up as a Jew. The truth is, there are many people that know about God. Many people who have attended church, who have gone to Sunday school, even attended a Christian day school, And done that all their lives. But it's not enough to simply know about God. We need to know God. Now Saul has an experiential knowledge of God. He has seen him face to face. He has heard him speak to his heart and to his soul. He has been forgiven. He has been embraced. His old self has died. Three days in the tomb of darkness. Then raised in baptism to a new light. He is a new person in Jesus Christ. He has seen Jesus. He is being transformed. 
When we are forgiven, we can forgive. When we're graced, we can be gracious. When we've been blessed, we can and we must be a blessing. We need an experiential knowledge of God. We need a moment with Jesus face to face. Have you encountered him? Have you embraced him? Is he changing your life? Christ's community must reflect the grace of Jesus Christ, especially to the people who rub us wrong, who appear sound and think differently than us. People who need grace. It is who Jesus is. It's who followers of Jesus need to be. Saul went from rounding up believers for death to rounding up unbelievers for life. He changed businesses, but he was just as passionate about it. He was sold out to the cause. Only God can orchestrate a transformation like that. And God loves to do it over and over and over again. One of us after another. He just loves doing it. Sometimes God breaks into our lives in rather dramatic fashion like he did with Saul. Sometimes, perhaps even most times, it's far more gradual and subtle. We learn over time. We learn step by step to give our heart to God. But everyone has to come to that point in their spiritual life when they face Jesus. And ultimately, everyone has to answer the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to acknowledge your need for God's grace and receive it, or are you going to push him and grace away? That's always a deep, personal, spiritual experience that everyone goes through it. You see, it's not about the lights. It's not even about the voices. It's about coming to Jesus. It's about your heart and God's heart. It's about your sins and his forgiveness. It's about your life and about his family. What Saul learned is something that you and I all need to learn. And for most of us, we need to learn it over and over again. Three simple things that I think confronted Paul on that day. First, Saul realized that Jesus was really alive. He was still alive the Easter message the disciples were proclaiming was absolutely true. And Saul had now seen and heard Jesus with his very own eyes and ears. Ananias noticed a difference in verse 17, and so did Barnabas in verse 27. Saul himself notes, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? He responded years later when his apostolic mandate was questioned. This was a theophany at the level of Jesus' appearance to his disciples following the resurrection. And they too changed dramatically because they saw Jesus. Now Saul changes. The reality is you cannot come face to face with Jesus and not be transformed. If you meet him, you will be changed. We all need one of those come to Jesus moments in our life.
when we consciously and publicly acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, crucified and risen. And when God transforms your life, people notice, and you're automatically a witness. Second, Saul realized that the cross had gone from a curse to a blessing. Saul no longer understood Jesus' death on the cross as a curse. Now it became a place of revelation for him, of grace, of God's atoning love and saving grace. And Paul will one day sum up that lesson in 1 Corinthians when he says, it's all about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because you see, God not only can change people's lives and hearts and souls, God can change curses into blessings. Third, Saul realized his salvation was by grace alone, not by anything he could do or even accomplish, not by works. Jesus doesn't appear to reveal God's wrath or avenge Saul's guilt. Jesus appears in this text to enlist Paul into his service. He says in verse 15, carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel." That's Paul, Saul's mission. And Paul goes from sin to salvation to service in this one text. Saul discovered a savior who can forgive him from his sins. And between you and me, killing the followers of Jesus Christ is a pretty big sin. God forgave it. That's forgiveness. Saul discovered a Lord who could and would use him to build his church and kingdom regardless of his background. That's grace. God's grace. God forgives and doesn't look back. That's what forgiveness and grace really do. So you and I together are called to be a grace-filled community. That means Two things, it means to embrace God's grace together because it is abundant. But it also means to extend God's grace together to one another and to this community. There's an old story about two monks who are walking in the drenching rain who encounter a woman who is trying to get from one side of a stream to another side of a stream. And one monk asks her, can I help you? And she says, yes, that would be wonderful. I need to get to the other side. And so he takes her hand and he assists her to the other side. The monks then continue walking. After a lengthy silence, the second monk addresses the first. I have a problem with you, he said. We have both taken vows not to look at a woman, let alone to touch one. And you did both. The first monk responded, Yes, I did, but I left her on the other side of the stream, and you apparently are still carrying her around in your mind. We just love to point fingers at other people for the littlest of things, and we forget when we point that there are three fingers that are pointing right back at us. We need to keep little issues, little issues. We need to look past our way to his way. We need to be eager to forgive and to offer grace. 
excited to walk the extra mile together. For in doing so, we become the people that God has called us to be. If we're not known for our grace, if we're not known for being forgiven, if we're not known for being one unity in Christ, then we have not yet encountered God and we are not yet transformed. God forgives and doesn't look back. He lets go of our sin. It's a lesson we need to learn as we continue to embrace community, as we strive to be his church. It's a lesson we need to learn and relearn and relearn again and again. We are a story of God's transforming grace. Can people tell by your life that you've met Jesus? That you're a follower of Christ? Can people tell by your extraordinary, exorbitant graciousness that you serve a gracious God? Could West or Littleton or anyone prove Christianity is viable and true based on the evidence of God's saving grace and transforming power found in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for grace, for your abundant, free grace because of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for saving us by grace. May we now, Lord, show your grace to this world. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.